Hey folks, it's Nick. I just wanted to let you know this is going to be a two-part episode. Uh, this episode is going to focus more on the man, Dusty Rhodes, uh, his origins from Texas to Boston to Florida, uh, as well as his relationship with appropriation of black culture and uh we're going to get into a discussion which actually ends the episode of the dichotomy between akeem the african dream and dusty Rhodes, the american dream and what that says about wrestling and quite frankly about vince mcmahon uh so we will be ending the episode after that and then tomorrow's episode will start by focusing on the tenure of dusty as a booker uh and his legacy in nxt as well as we're going to spend some time on his announcing in WCW. So uh, look forward to that. Everything else will be normal. Uh, so just enjoy. song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I am David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Pretty exciting episode today, Dave. Absolutely. I would say it is a topic of uh, wide birth and expansive imagination and all sorts of other words that, that, that mean big. <laughs> um, are you saying that because of Dusty Rhodes' influence or his girth, I guess would Both. be? Okay. <laughs> it's like uh, you can't have one without the other right it's like the <laughs> uh what i i think is interesting about dusty is both how influential he is and the idea that i have personally and i've watched a lot of wrestling but i'm not uh, in terms of like older wrestling i'm not the i've watched literally every episode of wrestling television basically of WWE wrestling television of the last 20 years, but maybe not necessarily uh, old NWA. But even then I have never seen old version, like young, I should say the, the early versions of dusty roads, even through most of the eighties wrestle in large part because he never wrestled on TV. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was part of the luxury of being the booker, right? Is you got to, uh, he was, he was like the original guy working the light schedule. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's interesting that like, because you mentioned he's the booker, like the ways in which the story, the kind of stories he told came from his upbringing, right? Like he, as I understand, it was a pretty big fan of Westerns. I think that's really interesting. Cause like we've talked about this, I want to do a episode on stagecoach, which is a, a one of the, the original, like, what made Westerns into Westerns in a meaningful way that like the, it's one of the first major John Ford movies. And and the idea that he was interested in that when he was younger is a really, it really explains a lot of the shit he did later on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at the stuff that, that Dusty was really into, you're seeing someone who even before they knew necessarily they were going to be a pro wrestler, you see someone who was really preparing to become a pro wrestler. You know, he, he loved Westerns, which are kind of manly man morality tales, which is really, as we've talked about a couple times, what wrestling, you know, really was. And he was, he was a huge fan of all those kind of like mid-century, especially baseball icons like Mickey Mantle and stuff. And, and the whole sports media business that was popping up around those folks when you started to have like writers like Frank DeFord and George Plimpton getting involved. So like he was involved in kind of 
all of just the mid-century culture stuff that directly influenced wrestling because you had you know the the morality aspect of the westerns and the character driven aspect of the westerns you had the kind of emerging rock and roll counterculture like that's very resonant in wrestling and then you also had like i said this intentionally hero making uh media which once again like that speaks to wrestling very much the idea of defining these characters very very well and way bigger than life so even when he was a young man, it's like he was into all the right stuff that was going to make someone a real wrestling mind. And in a different alternate universe where he grew up, maybe slightly farther to the West, he might have gotten into films. You know what I'm saying? Like, Because he grew up in Texas, right? I, he's, he's associated with Georgia, but did he grow up in Texas? Yeah, I believe he did grow up in Texas, absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah, I know he is a uh, university, big University of Texas football fan. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I think like it's interesting to see someone that is – was clearly, and we'll get into his legacy in terms of that, but who's clearly a very talented writer and thinker, like creative thinker, right? But I don't, I don't know if he was the best wrestler, but I mean, it worked for him in the beginning. Um, but how exactly does someone like that get involved in the business? Like, did he get involved in the business in Texas or did he go somewhere else? Well, he went to West Texas state, which was the big college associated with the funks. And uh, so, so basically anybody who played football for West Texas state, who was good and seemed like, you know, uh, smart, uh, was probably going to get approached by the funks to see if they were interested in trying the whole wrestling thing. You know, if they were smart and tough, it was, it was just one of the main pipelines for football players to get into wrestling. Like Stan Hansen, for example, is someone who went through that funk West Texas state pipeline. Um, so he had contacts and I think, you know, Tully Blanchard as well. Yes, absolutely. I think Tully Blanchard was kind of there. I think he was one of the first people actually who went through there. Definitely. Yeah. He's the one I always think of. That's why I specifically mentioned it. Did he work directly with the funks at that point? You know what? I don't know super specifically if he like ever went to one of their shows and worked out, but I know that he didn't officially break in as a wrestler with them. He kind of, he went to the East Coast, and he broke in in Boston, I know. Uh, but he, he was never formally trained. He was just kind of learning on the fly, or at least you know, he wasn't formally trained at the beginning. But, but he was really living the lifestyle that he would later talk about in his signature promos. Like, he was literally living on the streets, having dinner in homeless shelters, uh, wearing secondhand hats and coats and things like that. So he broke into the business uh, in a very humble, lowly manner, even though he probably could have used his connections at West Texas to to make things a little smoother. Yeah, and what I think is interesting is, uh, it, I mean, you lived in Boston. I am a Boston sports fan. So I have a very, we both have very strong ideas of how provincial Boston is. And the idea that he would have started there, even if he didn't work that much up there, is really interesting because he is so decidedly, but ambiguously Southern. He is what you think of one of the things you think about when you think of like a Southern night, maybe gentleman's not quite the right word, but like that son, that, that, that nice, good old boy, but actual good person kind of person from the South, not like a, like a country club guy, but like a, a guy who likes to shoot guns and like, you know, like, like, just shoot guns a good and, old boy. Yeah. Just, just like, no harm. <laughs> Um, just like, you know, shooting, I can imagine Dusty shooting a gun, like a BB gun at a can, 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like that, just for shits and giggles. Oh, I can imagine him shooting a high caliber revolver at cans, <laughs> you know, in front of passing train tracks. Yeah. yeah <laughs> but no, and I think that's part of like, what's interesting about him is he feel like, like you were saying, he, he's a very authentic character and it, it, given that he actually like, it seems like he pulled a lot of stuff from his own life, which I, I think is an interesting idea for like, we see that now, but we also saw in the juxtapose, like the, the period, a lot of this period is like people who are blatantly living gimmicks. And it seems like he was a guy who was playing himself, but am I wrong about that? So if you're, if you're someone who's under 40, uh, I think it's tough to say that you ever saw a version of Dusty that, that wasn't just Dusty. So I don't know that I'm qualified to answer that question. <laughs> but I, in other words, what I'm saying is, is it's not like The Undertaker, who's The Undertaker for 30 years or whatever the hell it is. No, 28 years, 25, 27 years. But like when you see him out of character, he's he is explicitly playing a character that is not him at all. Does that make, make sense? Like... Oh sure, sure. No, I think that I think that his, his his character was not like the Undertaker in that sense. No, definitely that his character wasn't like a jacket that he wore and that he took off when he got home. No, I think that really was him to his core. Or as I said, it became him. Like there's that there's that famous line. I don't know who got credit for saying it first that uh, Randy Poffo became Randy Savage and then Randy Savage became the Macho Man. You know what I mean? It's like a it's a similar deal where he just freaking was that person heart and soul and that even if that kind of person couldn't possibly re be real even if it was like this impossibly outsized character it was still authentically him it was still authentically what he had become it, some, something closer to like a stone cold steve austin yeah definitely you know i think that's a really really apt comparison actually as much as you know they they look very different and they steve austin kind of ironically came up in in the kind of era of wrestling where people kind of were rolling their eyes at dusty a little bit that, so it wasn't no baby that's for somebody else we're just gonna keep you right where you at right now exactly <laughs> the, the line from the best promo ever or at least the best shoot promo shoot promos are all cheating anyway so it doesn't count but definitely the, the good one <laughs> the good memorable one for all that like authenticity and all that that what ends up becoming likability because Dusty Rhodes might be the most beloved performer in wrestling history um, in terms of the legacy again which will I, I we're gonna spend a decent amount of time on NXT so I don't want to dive in now but like he is a beloved member like every major person you see come out of NXT right now in the last a couple of years was influenced usually directly by Dusty and if not by the immediate aftermath of the the world that Dusty created. I think a lot of the characters today really are kind of, you know, Dusty's descendants or Dusty's children and grandchildren. Um, not so much that WWE wrestling is like the kind of wrestling that Dusty Rhodes participated in, um, but that he is someone who, who really kept the emphasis on emotional resonance. I think that that's something that kind of disappeared from wrestling in the Attitude Era. But when things were hopelessly burned out by like 2008, 2009, 2010, and they were like trying to figure out how can we fix wrestling, like he was kind of like right there, like waving his hands, like, um, hi, like I've been holding on to all these secrets that I can tell people about now. Like, while I've been over here the whole time, you've been ignoring me, you know? When you watch, because we will, we might eventually spend some time on uh, NWO, Dusty. But I, I think it's really interesting that, as far as I can tell, 
both in and out of kayfabe in terms of like the people he mentored not obviously we just mentioned stone cold thought he was an asshole that was holding him back it seems like at the very least you could say that again dusty Rhodes wasn't like a bad person but the idea uh, uh, that he started his career for the most part as a heel is kind of funny to me <laughs> like like the idea that he would his goal was to like get you pissed off at him seems really funny to me Oh, yeah. Well, I guess it really speaks to kind of some old wrestling wisdom, right? The whole idea that, like, who's the best baby face? Who's the best new baby face? It's the really hot heel. Who's the best heel or the best new heel? It's the really hot baby face. That, that, but I think that, once again, it kind of speaks to the old school system that we've talked about off and on recently. We talked about it a lot when we discussed Heenan. Um, but, that you know, he had some time, like, throughout the 60s, really, to, to be working as a heel in a tag team and to be picking his spots and to be watching, like to be watching what those really, really good baby faces, you know, from the territory era that he was in there, what, you know, he was really observing what they were doing. So by the time that he got to be uh, a baby face, which I mean, he, he basically turned in 1974. So he had been uh, a heel and mostly famous nationally for being in a tag team uh, with Dick Murdoch called the West Texas Outlaws. Dick Murdoch was not from uh, West Texas State, but he famously pretended to be. <laughs> Including possibly apocryphally playing in their alumni football game one year. Definitely <laughs> one of the big uh, the big wrestling, the great characters. Uh, but, but the two of them were, were you know, uh, joined at the hip for, for most of the late 60s and into the early 70s. And Dusty was out there working as a heel, learning from the baby faces. You know, he was learning from Murdoch and... and you know, and just growing in hunger. I mean, that was kind of another part of the way the territory system worked is like people had to work on getting good before they got that big push into something really special. And by the time they got the big push into something really special, they were so ready to go because they'd been practicing in these lower stakes scenarios and because they'd just been, you know, honing their craft and learning more and thinking about what they were going to do when they get to the top. So when he turns babyface, he instantly is Steve Austin because he uh, he saved it. So it happened in Florida, which is where, you know, where he was primarily based out of kind of in the territory days. He's really heavily associated with Eddie Graham. But uh, he saved uh, Eddie and Mike Graham uh, from Pac Song or Pac Song Nam. Pac Song Nam, as uh, Gordon Soley would say, the, the best name for Gordon Soley to say. But, but basically, going back to something we talked about in one of our first episodes, he saved the, uh, the all-American family, the, the Grams, who were locally beloved by everybody. He saved them from the evil foreigner. It was kind of like when Steve Austin, you know, saved, Seth saved Stephanie uh, from The Undertaker, this person who was kind of an edgy heel character, but then, you know, he, he saves the day and does something undeniably good. And, and from there, he, he had the jetpack on, and it was like he was – he was going to break through the clouds and go higher than anybody had before. Yeah. And it, it reminds me also, I believe um, you can f research this in the fallout files. Uh, because I believe I'm right. Um, Hulk Hogan did the same thing. Uh, he had been a heel for a really long time, come back and saved Bob Backlund from getting his ass kicked. And Bob Backlund like explicitly gave him the, like uh, I, I, he got rid of Blassie. He's a good guy now. Like, I, I think it's just really funny to see this pattern of, and it's something that I am not, I do not believe in nostalgia. I think it is a disease that is ruining the world. 
But, but, I do see the ways in which the way things used to work do have value. And I think pretty unequivocally, the mentor system of the territory era was something that worked really well that they lost. Like that idea of this being a craft you have to learn and you have to be an apprentice for a while. And usually that involves you being a heel and then working your way to either an even bigger heel or a baby face is an important thing that the business has had genuinely lost and is starting to do a good job building back up. But they're not even, they're not anywhere where they used to be, but there's this idea that there for a while it was just we throw people out and whatever happens happens and now you see stuff where like if what they'll they'll do that initially right and then they'll oh that didn't work let's do this and it usually involves like uh, with Chad Gable and Bobby Roode it usually involves somebody be involving themselves in a tag team or something like that and then kind of like developing into something hopefully and if not you just kind of go okay well we'll keep them in a tag team until we release both of them. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's like nothing, nothing lights a match like an already lit match. You know what I mean? You don't have to go through the whole process of striking it. You can just touch the already lit match to it. And, and it's really the same with, with both heat and babyface overness in wrestling. I mean, ideally when people are over in the right way, that's the whole idea of you like quote unquote getting the rub. But I mean, it, it's interesting now because I think through NXT, which like we were saying before, you know, Dusty was a huge part of, they're really trying to codify that mentorship system in like a really positive way, or at least a really positive way for their, meaning WWE's ends. Like they are passing along the knowledge that people need to be WWE superstars and to functionally be part of, you know, this high level television production. Cause like back in the day, like there was all the good mentoring, like Dusty Rhodes, you know, was learning from Dick Murdoch about, you know, heat and about, uh, you know, how to feed the comeback and stuff like that. Like he was learning those things, but like he was also picking up some like pretty awful lifestyle habits at the same time. Like, you know, uh, Murdoch was like famously just a, a total outlaw, like a real Wild West figure in wrestling. And I think part of what made their mentorship relationship so interesting was that like Dusty was consciously learning from him and being taught by him in the way that people learn and teach today, even though Murdoch was like younger than him, but there's this idea that he was like a little ahead, you know, in terms of his experience. And just because he was this real outlaw. And like I said, at the beginning, Dusty was kind of a student of characters, a student of media, a student of storytelling. And so in addition to learning all the mechanical stuff, he's studying this legitimately crazy person and figuring out like, what about this legitimately crazy person is dangerous? What about this legitimate crazy person is very charismatic? You know what I mean? So he was, even though, like I said, even though I think he was technically a year older than Dick Murdoch, he was very consciously like studying Murdoch and learning from his character traits about what worked in wrestling. And I agree with you uh, that uh, the, the, the nostalgia is, uh, is, is uh, not something to marry yourself to, because I think that's a perfect example of, you know, that there was really great information that was being handed down. Uh, but there was also some unwise stuff that was being encouraged. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's what you would say, like, Oh, the good old days. And it was like, no, it wasn't like what's happening in the WWE, like especially in NXT is better than what was happening in terms of like people not also becoming 
you know, partier. You know what I'm saying? Like they're healthier people. Like, <laughs> and I mean, everybody's being trained in a way that emphasizes professionalism now, right? Like, here, here, here's a good Dusty Rhodes Dick Murdoch story. Uh, so they are in, I think it was Nassau in the Bahamas, not the Nassau Coliseum, but Nassau in the Bahamas, and it was it was kind of a fringy part of the Florida territory, and um, people didn't like going there because a lot of fans would sneak into the shows for free, like climbing over the wall and stuff. It was a little chaotic. And also, much like um, you hear about Puerto Rico and stuff, uh, some of the fans would be like, you know, throwing stuff at people, gross stuff, you know, rocks, lighters, uh, cups full of pee, stuff like that, you know. Uh, so nobody liked going to Nassau. And finally, uh, one night, uh, Dick Murdoch turns to Dusty Rhodes in the locker room in front of everybody and says, you know, I think it's about time we kill this town tonight. So Dusty and Dick go out to the ring and in the middle of their match, I don't remember who they were wrestling, but all of a sudden Dick Murdoch won't lock up with the guy on the other team. All of a sudden he holds out his arms in front of him like he's pantomiming handlebars and starts stomping his foot like he's kickstarting a motorcycle and making like motorcycle noises. And he starts running around the ring, making motorcycle noises like a boy in kindergarten going like when he turns and stuff, you know. And this poor, you know, less experienced baby faces in the ring being like, oh, Jesus Christ, what the hell do I do? (laughs) So after this goes on for a few minutes, uh, Dick starts making sputtering noises like the like the motorcycle is out of gas, like a (laughs) and then he falls to the ground and Dusty from the apron shouts to the baby face, go on, pin him. And so the baby face pins him. The crowd, like, you know, goes into a small scale riot because they're so pissed off with what has just happened. And they did kill the town. They stopped sending people from the Florida Territory to Nassau specifically because of that. So it's an interesting story in that, like, you see the sort of quote unquote old boy camaraderie of wrestling. And and you can see both the humorous and the very dark side and the very, you know, both the love of the boys and the brothership and the wanting to look out for each other, but at the same time, like the complete lack of professionalism. Yeah. And disregard on some level for the audience is anything other than marks. Exactly. Um, where like WWE for all of their stupid ass shit they do. And uh, some of the more like egregious and bad things they do. Doesn't, I think, I think, and you may disagree has a slightly more professional, I think would be the best word, relationship with the customer. There is an expectation if we don't entertain you, like we fucked up. Do you know what I'm saying? And I think that's like one of the things that like helped build McMahon's empire was this idea that they are consumers of a product that we create. And I think what it used to be was this idea of like, they are there because we've tricked them into spending money to watch us, right? Like, trick trick might be too, sorry. That's what we've gotten over. Like, yeah. the term to get over comes from cons. Yeah, and and that's how was the mentality. And McMahon changed that on some level um, because his goal was to, like, promote, and, and you, again, you may disagree, his goal was to promote shows through the prism of performers where I think it was the other way around. I think the goal of, uh, and it makes sense, of course, the NWA needed someone like Dusty Rhodes to be a huge star because he was a barnstorming tour unto himself as a world champion or something like that. 
because you have to be the attraction. The belt on some level has to be the attraction, not the individual shows. So what it becomes is you're just a person trying to, in Dusty Rhodes' case, you're just a person trying to every night, like do your job and get it done with, and then, you know, make money, make money off the gate, and then you're cool. And I think that is an aspect that it, of the few things that have changed for the better, that is one of them. You know, I think that he was a really important link in the chain or a really uh, important uh, shade in the gradient, let's say, you know, between that more traditional Southern style wrestling that had really dominated from the end of World War II and uh, up until the early 70s. You know what I mean? There, there definitely was that attitude of, of the people being the marks and protecting the business and maintaining the illusion really being the most important aspect of the business. And I agree with you that today, you know, Vince McMahon, it's all about putting smiles on faces, super serving the audience that's into your stuff and treating everybody really well. And I think Dusty was right in the middle there where Dusty was someone who understood as an individual performer, like when he went out in public to really engage with people. And it's like, if you ever see footage of Dusty with kids, uh, like when he was on top and stuff, he does the whole thing of like getting down on one knee and like really kind of joshing and talking a lot, you know, going along with them and really indulging them. So I think that maybe even if the wrestling business that Dusty was in, in the seventies and eighties was still sort of more carny inspired and still, you know, more likely to look down their noses at the fans. I think Dusty individually at least knew what side the bread was buttered on. And I think you see that in his booking later on too, because he was someone who the baby faces were always super strong and they always won out in the end. He wanted to give people the warm feeling. Like even if there was serious turmoil, even if there was serious jeopardy, it was all about making people's favorites, the triumphant victors in the end and really treating the fans as, as individuals who the wrestlers had this very important, very emotional relationship with. So not necessarily marks, but not necessarily like partners in the content, which is almost where WWE tries to get. Yeah, WWE definitely invites fans to think of themselves that way. And I think that I think that Dusty was careful not to. Dusty was careful to keep himself special and that you were there with him and that he was treating you very well and stuff. But at the end of the day, like the special thing was him. Don't get it twisted. Yeah. Uh, he reminds me actually the when you were describing that, um, and this is a previous episode, uh, Harold Hill, where it's like the kids had the music in him. So he was totally fine, like being a real person, but also a character at the same time with them where maybe it, it translated. But I mean, he was a, he was a, an enormous star. Like I, I think and we talked about this with Vaude, but I think it's hard to articulate like how big a star people like Dusty Rhodes were in an era where like the where wrestling wasn't as structured, quite frankly, in a way that it is now. Like you had the NWA, but each of those individual like fiefdoms or fiefdoms, fiefdoms, fiefdoms. Each of those individual fiefdoms kind of had its own standards in a way that like the industry is much more standardized now. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I think that Dusty was, I mean, Bruce Pritchard uses this phrase sarcastically a lot, but in his prime, like at any point really between that baby face turn in, in 74 and, and Starcade in 83, at any point in there, he really was, as they say, a, a main event anywhere in the world that he could step into any ecosystem and people were hungry to see him. Like I said, he mostly came from Florida and Florida was like blood and guts realism, emphasis on shooting. 
uh, not shooting as in guns, shooting as in grappling. Um, but, uh, but, but I mean, he couldn't have been more different, at least at his baby, in his baby face height from that ecosystem. And yet he was a star there. Then he goes to New York and he's wrestling, you know, superstar Billy Graham, who's got like the most impressive body to date in the wrestling business at that point. And Dusty looks like Dusty, but the people <laughs> want to see Dusty and he has the most over matches uh, and most money drawing matches of Graham's title reign with him. And then he can go out to the West Coast as well, or he can go to St. Louis, or he can go back to Texas. He could go up to the AWA, like anywhere. He was a main event wrestler everywhere, even when his style didn't match those localized styles, just because he was so transcendent. It, it really, you've got to compare him to like Andre the Giant, you know, where, where that's the only real analog out there that I can think of that, that's readily accessible. There was a reason that he was so emotionally resonant, and I don't think it's necessarily that he was some some kind of brilliant wrestling mind, which I'm not disagreeing, I'm not debating whether or not that was the case. What I'm saying is I think there was more to, he was, and I, I mentioned him earlier, Stone Cold-esque in terms of the just connection he had with the audience. That was a function of him being a talented performer, but also just being just that direct heart-to-heart -heart connection with the audience. And and I don't, and I think with Stone Cold, it's, it's more of like an... That was almost a proc. They love Stone Cold, right? But they also love Stone Cold even more when he was facing Vince McMahon. And I, I don't know enough about Dusty's career to say that. But it felt like Dusty had all of what Austin and McMahon had, but inside of him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's pretty fascinating that Austin's first promo in the WWF, as he's the ringmaster on the Brother Love Show, is he does the thing where he holds the he held his hand up to the camera and he says this is where the power lies reach out and touch my hand and you can feel the power as well in fact i think that maybe someone in an ad on this show before has done an uh, homage to that particular bit uh i don't know though i don't remember so clearly but anyway he that's a dusty bit that's the touch i mean dusty stole it from some televangelist i think uh, but, but, you know, the put your hand on the television, touch my hand, I'm exchanging the power to you, we're, we're feeling it together. And Austin, as ringmaster, was saying it sarcastically, because he was a heel, you know, but, but it is something that's a quality that both Austin and Dusty had, which was that belief that there is a connection between you and the audience, and that you share energy, that the anticipation of the audience when they want you to do something, that like the wrestler can feel that, and the audience can feel that the wrestler feels it. And then the, the, you know, the, the just relationship of, you know, the, the person's going to get the audience what they want. And that's really what makes someone a baby face is this idea. Like I said, even though Austin was kind of heelishly, sarcastically saying it, it really is the touch my hand thing that that's what a baby face is. It's, it's someone with whom the audience believes there is this resonance and there is this connection by which positive energy can be passed back and forth. And I think Dusty was was really someone who uh, understood how to do that as well as anybody, as well as any wrestler, as well as any actor, as well as any televangelist, uh, whoever did it. He was just the best at convincing people through the TV that like 
I am the figurehead. I am the American dream, but this is our thing together. And I'm nothing without you. I need you to pump me up. And if you pump me up, I am going to reward you by getting you the outcome you want. And then all of us succeed together. He looked the part too. Like, I don't mean like in the sense that he's like a bigger guy, obviously, and not in any kind of shape. <laughs> but... Rounds of shape. <laughs> that's a joke. That's a reference to the movie Raising Arizona. Unless you think rounds funny. <laughs> Sorry. But that was... Sorry, round the shape. Oh, God. Um, sorry, you need to give me a minute. You're a fucking asshole. I know that multiple members of Dusty's family are like intense vanity searchers, so God fucking forbid that they ever come across that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God. Oh, okay. No, I actually need... That was... <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh so much. <laughs> Okay. Um, and yeah, I think... Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, I think, like, he looked apart in the sense... Sorry. Part of that idea of we he needed us, right? He needed us is the fact that he looked like that. And I don't mean to, like, body shame him, because I look exactly like Dusty Rhodes, except I am shorter, in terms of the girth that I have going right now. So like, to be clear, I'm not body shaming him, but I think it is a much more believable idea that the crowd thought they needed to help that dude reach the top through the power of the fighting spirit and like the crowd's support and love than it would be with a better looking person to be completely like a more, sorry, I shouldn't say better looking, a person who more readily fits our ideals of attractiveness Oh, you mean like Roman Reigns? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love Roman Reigns, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the audience, why would he need the audience? He's beautiful, he's strong, he comes from a good family, he got a good education. Why would he need the audience? No, and, and I think that's a major failure of understanding, quite frankly, how wrestling works. Like, we want to root for... Stone Cold Steve Austin, I'm just going to come out and say it, has beautiful eyes. He's a good-looking guy, but he's not, like, the rock handsome. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, he's a normal, good-looking guy. But that became kind of the way that you watch television in the 80s, the 70s and 80s, and then you watch television in the late 90s through now. Every person on television is good-looking now. That's just how it works. But, like, Austin wasn't just this, like, he looked like a normal, good-looking guy. Dusty looked like a normal guy. That is one of the ways in which you can get a everyman-style performer over. Even Mick Foley looked like a normal guy. I, I happen to think Mick Foley's one of the better-looking guys in the history of wrestling, but that's just me, uh, when he has all of his teeth and his hair short. But that's just me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like, I think it's, his body was the body of not Christ, but like, he, <laughs> Amen. he, he had this part of his look was that it wasn't a great look. And I think that's like a weird mind fuck for us to appreciate, especially in the era where everyone on television is at least a baseline of attractive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it, it once again, it kind of, it, it speaks to the psychology of everyday life and the psychology of wrestling 
because it's like in the world of wrestling, it's like the heel is a liar and the heel is overconfident and the heel wants to hide his warts in shame. And when they're exposed, he's extremely embarrassed and he has to run off covering his ass and he can't come back for a while because he's, you know, so embarrassed or whatever. Whereas like, Dusty like led with the warts. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that, like he literally there's there's literally promos where he's saying the thing like, you know, my belly might be a little round or whatever. Like he, mm-hmm. he yeah. did not run away from it. It wasn't like the you can't say Hulk Hogan is bald thing. It was the like, no, Dusty's physical appearance was absolutely, as you say, um, a big gateway to a, an invitation to for people to identify with him, to see them as the guy who could be in front of them in line at the hardware store bullshitting about different sizes of screws. You know what I mean? That's the (laughs) deal. And that's what Austin has too. I mean, if you look like I, I always kind of joke with you, right. That I'm a very avid listener to Steve Austin's podcast, unless he's like talking about outdoorsy stuff. And that's just not for me, but like, I respect that he has an outdoor life brand built around the fact that he seems like the guy who could be behind you in line at Cabela's. You know what I mean? And, yeah. I think that Dusty had that same bit, but also part of it, and it's it's to get back to the topic of, of, of warts here, is I think part of what Dusty did to kind of, to make himself broader, to make himself a true everyman, was some of the racial appropriation stuff that we talked about last week when we were talking about those late 70s, early 80s wrestlers. If you watch Dusty, he is actively and unabashedly appropriating black culture, just straight up. But he's doing it in a way that doesn't sanitize it to make it palpable for white audiences as the primary driver of the idea, right? Like, he seem to have celebrated, especially being a, a growing up a sports fan, uh, especially coming through the 70s and the early 80s, a, a, an appreciation for black culture that he wanted to, he, he was attempting to both, he was fully aware he was appropriating with it, but doing it in such a way that like, it wasn't in any way ever malicious, nor did it ever feel that way. It was just like, why are you talking like a black guy? Like, it wasn't like, why are you, are you using that as an excuse to do this? It was just like, why are you talking like that? And then you start to realize like, no, he just started to talk like that. Like when you hang out with people, when you hang out with people in the South, right? You start to get a bit of an accent. Like you can see the idea of him trying to like build this idea that he's again, an everyman, that he, he is involved in all different cultures and transcends all of that. But I don't ever think he did it in a way that like, Akeem did, where it was like supposed to be a hurtful reinterpretation of black culture. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, when it came to Dusty, you know, he he dressed a certain way and he spoke a certain way and he had certain cultural reference points that were clearly, as you say, borrowed from African-American culture. But I think it kind of gets back to what we talked about at the beginning, which is him kind of seeing the world through a storyteller's eyes. And if you're portraying yourself as someone who, who stands for justice and who stands for the oppressed and who, you know, and who believes in doing the right thing and fixing the things that are wrong in the world, 
Like if you grew up in the world that Dusty Rhodes grew up in, that could very easily lead to someone identifying with African-American culture. Whether uh, whether people, uh, how should I phrase this? Hold on. He didn't need to, he wasn't trying to be a white savior. He was trying to, a savior. He was trying, or like, like I said, making it palpable for white audiences. That was what he thought was a... F- a fun way to talk for lack of a better word. Like that's how he, that really seems the way in which he spoke, but it is so clearly borrowed from black culture that it is undone. You can't separate the two. Yeah, definitely. Specifically uh, a, a wrestler named Thunderbolt Patterson is who both he and superstar Billy Graham kind of stole that speech pattern from. And I would say that like superstar Billy Graham was just doing it because it sounded cool. You know what I mean? Like, you dig daddy. I got this suntan laying out in Death Valley. I don't, you know, what, what, all this stuff. Anyway, sorry, all the great superstar Billy Graham lines. Uh, but he just did it because it sounded fucking cool. Whereas I think in Dusty's mind, taking on aspects of black culture was speaking to his desire for authenticity and his desire for a world in which all of the baby faces and the baby face fans, quote unquote, in which like all the good people were on the same side and who could sit down and talk with each other civilly and like could work together and be together and share a culture rather than like sitting in two opposite camps. So I think that while what he did was certainly appropriation and it's anybody, it's anybody who is black's right to be offended by it. Uh, you know, but, but I think that for him, it was, an attempt to tap into some deeper truth about good guys and bad guys in America. Whereas, uh, uh, like you said, Akeem, well, that's just making fun of that. That's just racistly making fun of Dusty for attempting to make authentic connections with black fans. It actually weirdly reminds me of the fake journal criticism, the fake journal controversy, I should say, of um, people putting in pretty like extreme things uh, into... The idea that the the culture the the culture of the American dog park reflects rape culture was the famous yeah. one. That the, the behavior of dogs at the dog park reflects. Rape and what culture. they'll be saying in that instance is like, oh, we're just we're just trying to prove this point. And it's like, no, you're trying to marginalize these things. And, and that's what Akeem was doing. He was saying, what like Akeem that character was trying to marginalize through and playing it off as well. We're just making fun of. Um, Akeem, the African dream is just making fun of Dusty Rhodes, the American dream. And it's like, no, you have a problem, a problem. No, you have a problem with him. It may be personal and you may be looking. And part of that problem may be the ways in which he reminds you of certain aspects of culture that you don't like or see as less than. And, and like Dusty never treated black culture as less than white culture, at least from what I've seen, where like they were pretty explicitly in the WWF with Akeem saying, no, this is like, this is less than, these are bad guys, not because they're mean for making fun of Dusty, but because this guy's an asshole who would talk like this. Yeah, exactly. And, and then there, there's like an unrespectable buffoonery to it. It's like, uh, it, it, it's so weird because it's like, well, and please, uh, I, I, this is a character talking, not, not Dave here, but I think the viewpoint was that culture is so much worse than ours to begin with. And the outfits that they wear are so fucking stupid 
that how dare you or, or how stupid are you as a white male to repudiate your whiteness and, and take on these affectations. You know, it was, it was like, a it was like the opposite of the fans of a punk rock band thinking they sold out. It was, it was like doing the thing of like, how dare you try to connect with other people or how, how dare you try to validate that experience? Yeah. And it's really like, I mean, it is pretty like they, the WWF was real fucking racist in the late eighties. Like just straight up racist. And like, I think, that is part of the reason the fish rots from the head, brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that when you look at the, and I don't want to, I don't want to accuse Vince McMahon of holding a grudge against dusty Rhodes just because he also hated black people, but I don't think it helped. Like, I don't think the idea, like what we were just saying, like, I think, that there are real, of course, throughout wrestling, there are incredibly problematic portrayals of people of color, of women, of everybody, but particular in terms of marginalized groups. I think that Vince saw those as two separate things, but didn't, like, I don't want to say Vince was racist per se. I think he without thinking too hard about it both over and underestimated how racist the fans were does that make sense like he thought well i mean these are racist people anyways so might as well just do a racist character because that's what's going to get over where i don't necessarily think i'm not saying like he's some sort of like saint but i think that Vince McMahon was such an asshole categorically or is such an asshole categorically that the idea of racism is like on the fourth thing on that list of things he didn't like about Dusty Rhodes. Does that make sense? I also think that, you know, Vince McMahon is like one of those people who like is probably privileged enough that they like don't think racism is a problem anymore, at least not in our business, quote unquote. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I think that he lives on that cloud that like a lot of I'll say us, a lot of us white people lived on like in the nineties, like being like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all past that. Like, come on. Like that was civil rights. That was like 30 years ago. Come on. I really think now. But no, I think that, I think that Vince wouldn't say that uh, for that reason, I don't think Vince would say Akeem was racist. I think he would say, well, this was a caricature and it was kind of, uh, it was pointing out some, some, uh, some relevant things, especially, you know, if you lived in the, in the New York area, you were increasingly seeing people wearing traditional African garb. And there were a lot of questions about that. You know what I mean? Like he would, he would definitely squirm his way off it, but I think that that whole Akeem bit. And then later what happened with Dusty and the WWF when he did get there in uh, 90 or whatever, 89 or 90, whatever that was. But I think that Vince, there, there's this whole thing of like Vince had it out for Dusty. That's why he put him in the polka dots and why he kept him in the mid card and why he gave him the like uh, the Mark manager or Mark Valet Sweet Sapphire, which is to a reference to something that was left on the cutting room floor last week, a reference to Amos and Andy. <laughs> Sweet Sapphire is the name of one of the characters' girlfriends on the Amos and Andy show back in the day, which was a kind of like minstrel style uh, entertainment first radio and then television show. Although on the television show, they did have black actors, uh, but the radio show, the creator. Fucking Christ. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, but it, he literally did all this blatantly racist stuff, but like, I think it was just, 
like Vince would, Vince McMahon would tell you it wasn't racist, even though all of it is objectively both very racist and deeply personal feeling. Fight your tongue, take your 